Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com in our merch section and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon for at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. We just published our review of Olivia Rodrigo's Guts with Stereo Gums' Tom Bryan. Great conversation. We have so much great content coming this month, so you won't want to miss that. That's at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or click the link in the show notes of this episode. Also, gorgeous, gorgeous, my queer pop party is happening this Saturday, September 16th, at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. That's gorgeous, gorgeous New York. It's our second New York party. I'm so excited about it. The first one was literally the greatest blowout of my life. So if you are in the greater tri-state area or you want to make a pilgrimage there, come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous at the Sultan Room Saturday night, 11 p.m. Tickets are available in the show notes of this episode. I will also post them on our social media channels. And of course, our flagship LA party will be having its next installment in downtown Los Angeles at Resident in two weeks on Friday, September 20. Ninth. Lastly, Pop Pantheon is doing our first live show. It's called Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's Memoir, Music, and Legacy. It is being thrown in conjunction with LAist at the Crawford in Pasadena. And I have a panel of great guests, including Jason King, Troy McKeady, and Kirby Johnson joining me to talk all things Britney. We're going to be dissecting the memoir. We're going to be talking about her music and legacy. And then we're going to be doing a little Britney-themed gorgeous, gorgeous party in the parking lot after. So link to buy tickets for that will also be in the show show notes of this episode. Okay, enough with the housekeeping. This is part two of our Prince series. This is a three-part series that began rolling out last week. In the last episode, we covered everything from Prince's early life through his pop breakthrough with 1982's 1999. If you haven't listened to that, I recommend going back and listening to that first, because this week we are picking up with 1984's blockbuster Purple Rain album and film, the record that established Prince as an upper echelon superstar for the ages and and the music for which he is largely remembered to this day by most casual listeners. And we're talking all the way through the end of the 1980s. We'll be covering 1985's Around the World in the Day, 1986's Parade and Under the Cherry Moon, 1987's seminal double album Sign of the Times, as well as 1988's Love Sexy and 1989's Batman soundtrack. Next week, we will, of course, be picking up with the latter period of Prince's work through the 90s, 2000s, through his death in 2016, talking about the Super Bowl, talking about his legacy, influence on generations of pop stars that have come after him, etc., etc. So, without further ado, here is part two of our series on the legend, the purple one, Prince. With the massive success of 1999, Prince had effectively translated his eccentric, genre-eviscerating, sexually transgressive, and politically charged music into something with mass appeal. But his ambitions were greater still. For his next trick, Prince wanted to try on the hat of biggest pop star in the universe, and he had a unique plan to get there. Prince tasked his manager at the time, Robert Cavallo, with finding him a studio film to star in. But Cavallo was shot down by every single one he approached. Undeterred, Prince commissioned a writer from the television show 
fame to write a script based on his own treatment, which followed a young musician, The Kid, who fronts a Minneapolis-based rock band conveniently called The Revolution. The film would be titled Purple Rain. Produced on a budget of just $7.2 million, shot mainly in Prince's native Minneapolis, and starring a pop star still very much on the rise, Purple Rain was, by any measure, a massive gamble. Almost no one who worked on the film had any experience in movie making. Prince cast his friends and bandmates from the Minneapolis music scene in the majority of the roles, and the man at the helm of the film, Albert Magnoli, was a first-time director. Ahead of filming, Prince also set to work on a new album that would serve as the film's soundtrack. An attempt to further centralize his signature musical aesthetic, the Purple Rain soundtrack became his most pop-oriented album yet, while still retaining the iconoclastic edge that made Prince Prince. The lead single, the baseless, psychedelic electro-funk slammer When Doves Cry, released ahead of the film's premiere, became Prince's first number one single on the Billboard Hot 100. It remained at the top of the charts for five weeks and launched the film, the soundtrack, and Prince himself into utter ubiquity, beginning a legendary ride that would cement his place as one of history's signature and most important pop cultural icons. weeks after its June 1984 release, the soundtrack to Purple Rain became Prince's first number one album. It eventually sold 25 million copies worldwide and was certified 13 times platinum, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. Its second single, the electronic rockabilly frenzy Let's Go Crazy, became the set's second number one, while the soaring arena rock ballad title track hit number two and the arrhythmic electropop masterpiece I Would Die For You hit number eight. The film, a semi-autobiographical fantasia that paired campy performances with dazzling live renditions of the soundtrack in a style that was becoming increasingly familiar to teen audiences enthralled with the then-ascendant MTV, simultaneously became a box office juggernaut. It earned $70 million, won the Oscar for Best Original Score, and is widely considered by critics as one of the greatest musical films of all time. By 1985, there was no escaping Prince. His look in the film, the coiffed hair, mustache, purple bolero, ruffled shirt, skin-tight matador pants, and revving motorcycle, stands to this day as one one of pop history's most indelible images. When he and the revolution hit the road, 1.7 million people went to see the tour. Prince had achieved his goal of pop imperialism and then some, but ever the mercurial character, he recoiled. For his next record, 1985's Around the World in a Day, Prince rejected almost everything that had made Purple Rain a smash. The music mostly swerved away from the radio pop of the previous album and into impressionistic, kaleidoscopic, often hookless psychedelia, inspired by Beatles records like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Released with almost no fanfare by Prince's request, the album reached double platinum certification, but paled in comparison to Purple Rain's sales. It did, however, feature two hits, the spare, self-interrogating pop life, which reached number seven, and the album's most obvious radio-friendly concession, the lilting, lovely pay-on to teenage romance, Raspberry Beret, which hit number two.
1986, Prince tried to repeat the formula of Purple Rain with the romantic musical comedy Under the Cherry Moon. Mary Lambert, who had directed the bulk of Madonna's iconic early 80s music videos, was set to helm, but exited the project weeks into the shoot, leaving Prince in the director's chair. The film was panned by critics and cleaned up at the Golden Raspberry Awards. It tanked at the box office too, pulling in $10 million in its entire run, an anemic gross following Purple Rain's commercial success. The associated album, the expansive, genre-traversing masterwork Parade, however, soared where the film sank. Branded as a creative comeback by critics, it featured one of Prince's signature hits, the chart-topping skeletal electro-funk banger Kiss. In 1987, following the successful Parade tour, Prince disbanded the revolution and released his seminal double album Sign of the Times. Initially intended as a triple set, the album culled from numerous shelved projects, including Dream Factory, a project meant to feature the revolution's Wendy and Lisa on lead vocals, as well as Camille, a record in which Prince pitched his vocals up in order to inhabit a lascivious female alter ego. Described by Rolling Stone as arguably the finest record of the 1980s, Sign of the Times remains Prince's most acclaimed album, a showcase for nearly all of his virtuosic talents, seamlessly hopping from funk to rock to new wave, Philly soul to boudoir R&B and even hip hop, and from sly socially conscious takedowns of modernity to ecstatic romantic joy bombs to sticky introspection on God, religion, and sex, mind-bending gender twists, and booty-shaking party anthems. Nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys and topping the Village Voice's venerated Paz and Jop critics poll, Sign was certified platinum, Prince's lowest-selling album in five years, but also produced a series of hit singles, including the number 10 hit I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, the number three peaking title track, and the number two classic Prince electro-funk stunner You Got the Look. Sign represented both a creative peak for Prince and also the end of something. Prince would of course go on to produce more indelible hit music through the rest of the 80s and into the mid-90s, and his music after that even has its champions. But something shifted for the Purple One following this crowning artistic achievement. In 1988, Prince had what has alternately been referred to as a spiritual awakening and or a life-altering ecstasy role. In either case, spirituality, positivity, and God abounded on 1988's Love Sexy. Branded by Prince as a gospel album, Love Sexy was his first true flop since his commercial breakthrough, selling half of Sign of the Times and marking his first album since 1981's controversy not to crack the top 10. Prince rebounded with the soundtrack for Tim Burton's 1989 film Batman. The single Bat Dance was a number one hit and the album stayed atop the Billboard 200 for six consecutive weeks, helping Prince end the 80s, a decade which he would play an integral role in defining on a relative high note, but also subterraneously on some shaky ground as he and popular music entered the trans transformative 1990s. Here with me to discuss Prince's imperial years, both commercially and artistically, is Pot Psychology's Rich Joswiak. Okay, I'm here with Pot Psychology's Rich Joswiak. Rich, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Of course. Always a pleasure. I love getting to talk to you about all this stuff. A lot of my favorite installments of the show actually have been with you, so I'm really glad to have you on. And I know that Prince is a big point of fascination for you. And when we were sort of plotting out who should cover different periods of his career, I was like, 
this is the one that feels like the most critical in many ways or the most emblematic or a run of albums that feels like the period of Prince's career that helps us understand why he's such an important part of pop history. And so I'm glad to have you here for that moment. To me, this feels like a period of sometimes harmonious, sometimes competing impulses for Prince sort of between his desire to be the biggest pop star or to show the world how commercially successful and huge he could make his music, and then simultaneously the impulse to also be the weirdest, most idiosyncratic mainstream pop star of this period slash maybe ever. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I felt like those things worked harmoniously and sometimes it felt like maybe they were in conflict. And then also in the earlier swing of his music, between carnality and his desire to like push buttons and push boundaries, and then this creeping religious fanaticism or something that seems mm -hmm. to sort of occur over this period. How do you relate to those ideas? And is that how you would also characterize this moment in Prince's career? Yeah, and I think that in the respect that he not only had this incredible melodic sense and sixth sense mm. for understanding what the public would gravitate to, even if the sound itself was really alien, his desire to at the same time be idiosyncratic and really take so many risks push so many boundaries, flirt with the idea of putting out records without his name on them repeatedly. We see this happen in this period. Put some of his best songs on B-sides, mm. not release others. I think he kind of spoiled at least me for what a pop star can do when he is in full mastery of his powers and just totally fearless. And some of it's arrogance, mm. but a lot of it is just for the sake of creativity. And to me, a lot of the stuff is just self-evidently brilliant, but it's probably something akin to Picasso where you don't really understand the greatness until you see it all stacked up. Right. Until you go to that Picasso museum or see the Picasso Picasso sculpture exhibit and really understand just how many cylinders he was firing because it's basically infinite at this point. He does feel unique in pop history in terms of his ability to balance mainstream impulses and the avant-garde. I think a lot of stars aspire for that or attempt to work that out and are way less successful at walking that tightrope. What do you think it is about him or about his approach or maybe his natural talent or intuition or instincts or just being that allowed him to do that so effectively. Why was he so good at that? Sometimes I'm listening to these records. Of course, you listen to Purple Rain and it's like banger after banger after banger and it makes a lot of sense why these songs were all smashes. But you listen to some of this other music and it is so experimental and strange. I mean, there's certain things that we're going to get into today that the idea that this is coming out of a pop star during the peak of their success who is definitely thought of as a mainstream successful act is kind of shocking. You listen to a song even like Bat Dance from the Batman soundtrack, which was a number one single. It's one of the strangest yeah. pieces of music I've ever heard. Why do you think Prince was able to be so incredibly strange and so incredibly successful at the same time. I mean, I think he just had it. There was just something about his creative impulse that worked on a very fundamental level for people, melodically, in terms of the tone. He basically wrote hits on command at a certain period. Mm. Both 1999 and Purple Rain, they needed something else. Mm. 1999 didn't have a first single, and then he wrote 1999, and that was the first single, which initially flopped, and then after the success of Little Red Corvette, became huge, and now it's one of the signature songs in his catalog. In terms of When Doves Cry, Albert Magnoli, the director of Purple Rain, said, we need a song tying all this stuff together. It's got to be about your parents. It's got to be about the strife. What 
whatever. Mm. And the next day, Prince delivered When Doves Cry. It was just like, here you go, whatever. Right. And that is a very odd song as well. Yeah. And I think a huge part of it, too, is just the question mark of it all. He was just a total oddity. Yeah. <laughs> and he kept a lot of distance from himself, even when he was being revealing. And I think that that worked. Yeah. And also, consider that this is happening in the 80s when eccentricity is at a premium. The industry was not driven by fear like it is today. It wasn't driven by like, okay, that song was a hit. Now everybody has to make that song. Mm. That was not the imperative whatsoever. And I think MTV only amplified the need for eccentricity and to really stand out. So this is when this was cool, as opposed to today in a big way. Yeah, that was honestly going to be my next question. And one thing that I'm interested in particular to unpack with you, because I know that this is stuff that you think about, and I love always discussing this stuff with you, but it is genuinely shocking. And I think we touched on this a little bit when we discussed George Michael, to look back at the big male pop stars of this period and how they presented themselves and that that was all acceptable at a time period where homophobia was so rampant and of course Prince was not openly queer or gay or anything but you stack up Michael, him, George, all of these guys I mean I couldn't get over watching Prince and just thinking about the way he sounds the way he's able to openly in this music play around with the ideas of masculinity and femininity and all of that stuff and then to have every basic bitch across the world just sort of be like yeah no problem seems good to me like I think it can be hard for modern audiences in some ways to wrap their head around that because even now in 2023 when we have a lot more cultural openness and acceptance to lgbtq plus community whatever and again i'm not saying prince was a part of that but in terms of just gender expression all those things i still feel like pop stars are still kind of caged in we're still shocked by little nas x wearing a dress or whatever on the red carpet and yet here we have prince one of the biggest stars in the world walking around in high heels singing sometimes as a woman sometimes as a man i mean there's all these things going on here that i think it can be hard to get your arm arms around how dissonant it feels that that era of culture was so much less accepting on a surface level of some of this stuff. And yet it was totally fine and almost unquestionable that most of the giant male pop stars of this period were incredibly androgynous and strange. Yeah. Quote unquote strange. I think sometimes looking back at this period can be hard for me to process that in some ways. And I think a lot of that goes back to Little Richard. Yeah, totally. Who I thought about a lot during this deep dive. Yeah. Right. And there was even, I think it was at the Purple Rain premiere or something where little Richard said Prince is me today. Right. But you know, there was in that Lisa Cortez documentary about Little Richard that came out this year, they noted that Little Richard came up at a time when Emmett Till was being lynched. Mm. When male black sexuality was so terrifying to white America that they felt no bones about just killing men over it, just slaughtering them and making it a big public spectacle. And the antidote to that was to present as so feminine that it offset any of that fear because I guess the racism is more deeply ingrained than the homophobia, really, when you come down to it. Right. Or for whatever reason, softening one's image just made it easier to accept that level of sexuality in a way. Mm. It's like a spoonful of sugar mm. or something like that. <laughs> and Prince is aware of this, too. I mean, in Purple Rain, Morris Day's character calls him a long-haired faggot. Right. Motherfucker! You long-haired faggot! And uptown, there's the, are you gay controversy? Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? He's always contending with this stuff, but he was just fearless about it. Yeah. He was just content to create his own destiny, and he was talented enough to do so. Right. And I think also 
there's this thing, and I thought about this a lot with Little Richard, which is somehow before these concepts are crystallized in public consciousness or in broad public consciousness in the way that they are today, we all have these categories, we think about this all the time, there's maybe a general conception of just alienness that goes on that in some ways allows for more freedom and allows for more of this eccentricity in terms of gender presentation and all of that stuff to sort of fly under the guise of just, it's Prince, he's a total freak, he's an eccentric, whereas now I feel like we'd be sort of needing him to be categorized in a specific way. Perhaps in some ways the repression of the overculture allows for more freedom for a star like Prince because people are just kind of like, it's Prince or it's Michael. I mean, you look at Michael, his most obvious contemporary, at least in the mainstream pop space at this time, and he's also, beyond just being androgynous, is also having all this plastic surgery and changing his skin color and changing his facial features. And I just wonder sometimes if there's a comfort in just sort of going, that's alien. We don't even know what all these gender shifts and sexuality categories are, so it's just alienness. And it's artists. Artists are crazy and we're normal. I don't know. Like, I just have spent a lot of time trying to grapple with how men who presented this way could exist simultaneously to a culture that really hated gay people and definitely didn't even acknowledge trans people at the same time. A part of it, too, I think, is just the pure swagger. Yeah, right. There's something about Prince that just lets you think, well, he has it figured out, even if I have no idea what's going on. Totally. And I can defer to him. Totally. And as you said, just the sheer artistry and talent of both of those men, but we're talking about Prince today, it's just undeniable. And I think that that also speaks to perhaps why the eccentricity of the music went over. And I think you were getting at this earlier. It was just the sheer force of talent and star quality and musicianship. He broke down your judgments or he pummeled through people's prejudices, I guess, by just sheer force of his talent and ability. And I think that this era actually probably illustrates how he did that more than any other period in his career. So maybe a good point for us to start at is to just kind of pick up with the end of the 1999 era and talk about how Purple Rain comes together. Because basically, just to summarize where we were, Prince had kind of an interesting entree into pop in the sense that before 1999, he was a bit of a alt- pop star of some sort, somebody that was appreciated a lot, maybe more by black audiences. He hadn't quite crossed over into massive mainstream success. He had had dalliances with it. I Want to Be Your Lover was a big hit, but he was still kind of an opening act for the Rolling Stones during this period. He hadn't quite crossed over into megastar. And then obviously 1999 was a massive breakthrough record for him that had a couple top 10 singles on it and sold many millions of copies and sort of made Prince a big star. In your mind, how can you characterize where Prince is following 1999, how he's perceived in contrast to other stars of the period, and what you think he's still having to prove in terms of his desire to become the biggest pop star of the moment. Well, he's still kind of considered a crossover act coming from Black Radio being Black, Mm. and this was not a nice time for Black artists. Right, post-disco. Post-disco was a really tough time, and there was a huge fissure between the R&B charts and pop charts for a little while, and then MTV comes and MTV is decidedly anti-Black. It takes Prince and Michael Jackson to get them to start playing Black artists, really. I think that you could probably compare it to Madonna after her first album. There's the sense that they could cross over if they do it right, if they have that big album and those big singles, but it's certainly not guaranteed. 
the beautiful thing about Prince is that he was allowed five albums to do that. Right. I don't think that happens today. No. And what a shame. It is. I was thinking about that. I mean, Madonna's different, I guess, in the sense that she was pretty huge out the gate and then just kept getting bigger and bigger through the 80s. And it wasn't like she ever had a period of not being really big. But I still do think she kind of built to mass saturation through the 80s. She had a chance to grow into an artist over the course of, let's say, four albums through Like a Prayer being in some ways kind of the peak of her first era. Mm -hmm. There was a good six, seven, eight years in there for her to come into herself. And I felt that again about Prince here, where it was like, first of all, you could really trace the expansion and artistic evolution of what he's doing in terms of his production, his vocal styling, what he's singing about. The thing just feels more and more and more expansive as you move through these works. But with Prince, as you mentioned, he really built from kind of a niche artist into something much, much bigger than that on 1999. As you mentioned, over the course of like five years, and that again is a really foreign concept and yet at the same time incredibly prolific i mean as we're going to continue to talk about through this period i mean he is dropping one of these records every single year and he's basically doing it all by himself so i almost think of him as a mad scientist in some ways who just sat in the studio and just was able to be like a one-man band just tinkering expanding with his toys and his machines and i think we'll talk a lot about how i think one of the most fascinating elements of prince's music as experienced through both the sound of these records and what he likes to deal with thematically is the advancement of technology and where humanity exists as technology balloons out of control seems to be something that he's fascinated with in terms of themes and lyrics and what his music really contends with is where is the balance between mechanization technology and humanity and carnality and spirituality feels like a huge concern i felt almost a symphonic peak during some of this stuff so is the idea essentially he's a big deal but he's not quite the prince that we think of today following 1999. He's kind of someone that people have their eyes on, but you wouldn't necessarily have thought of him as an AA tier pop contender at this moment. Yeah, definitely. Because Little Red Corvette went top five, Delirious was top 10, 1999, I think peaked at 12. So he's definitely capable of having hits and people are interested, but you still got to work for your dinner. Right. You're still going to have to wow us. Right. And then Purple Rain does. Right. And that was the stated intention. And the other thing I just wanted to quickly say that you had me thinking about earlier and I think is important to understanding Purple Rain, there is a sort of feeling I felt during this era of Prince of proving that anything he wants to do, he can do. Yeah. It's almost like he can be the biggest pop star in the world, but he doesn't always want to be, yes. which is not a choice that many people have. <laughs> you know, it's like an interesting conundrum that I think he contends with. I almost get a sense that with Purple Rain, his entire intention in a way that it never was again in any of his work was to just prove that if he wanted to be, he could be the biggest thing on planet Earth. Is that your vibe about what his vision for this project was? Well, the vision for the project per Robert Cavallo, who worked at Warner and was part of his management team, basically from 79 to 89. He said to Cavallo, I want to star in a movie. I want my name above the title and I want it released by a major studio. So he's definitely swinging for the fences at that point. That stated goal made no sense in any context, mm. let alone for Prince, just because it was basically unprecedented and because the track record for pop star movie hits was basically nil. I mean, Diana Ross, yeah, yeah. Beatles, yeah, but Paul Simon was in something that flopped. I think Paul McCartney was in a movie in the 80s. It was just not what you do. But it's also a brave new world with music videos. Right. And they very wisely stuck to 
keeping as much music video-ness in Purple Rain as possible, whether it was through montage or actual performance. And keep in mind that pretty much the music videos that we've seen of Prince at this time and into the future as well going forward, it's very performance-based. There were not a lot of conceptual Prince videos. There were a few, but so many of them are just him on stage performing. Kind of dissonant, honestly, Rich, looking back. I was sort of surprised about that when I went back through this. In my mind, I always think of Prince as such a seminal MTV artist. Totally. But yeah, not a lot of great videos. No, it's really surprising for somebody that had such an insanely expansive creative vision to have so few memorable music videos. is a really fascinating, weird thing. I wonder what that was about. I don't know. I mean, perhaps it owes something to the fact that this is a expansive and not well-trod period for pop stars in general. I mean, we think of all these artists as sort of setting the template, but they were all carving their own paths in this particular moment. I mean, this being such a huge boom for the ideas of pop stardom as we think of it today. Now you're a big pop star. You're making conceptual music videos. That's calcified in our minds. But I think it's also maybe instructive to remember that at this moment, there really is a fissure breaking apart slash coming together of what being a pop star is about. That's literally happening underneath the feet of these icons. Prince, Michael, Madonna, these people are literally inventing this whole idea. And so you have maybe some more disparate or sort of different approaches to that. It isn't so calcified what you do to be a pop star. And maybe that's also what sort of allows for the hubris of this film, because that's also some sort of ambitious, crazy idea. And as you were saying, the industry is more open to these ideas. They're flush with cash. There's more of an impetus to support artists' crazy whims, perhaps, at this moment. We don't often see artists today making movie musicals of their albums. So this is obviously a moment where the industry is also willing to take risks because there is maybe a sense of how new and different everything is with the advent of MTV and this moment of change in the ideas of music stardom. Yes. All right. So can you talk a little about the process of making the film and the album and how it comes together? You know, it's his idea. He starts looking for somebody to do this, basically. They finally come across Albert Bagnoli, who at that point had been an editor. Right. I think what really gets the ball rolling is he meets with Albert and he shows him like a hundred songs that he can pick from to make this movie. Mm. I mean, the vault was kind of ever expanding and there was always stuff that was unreleased, but we can infer that a lot of this stuff had been made in the time since 1999 or around the time of 1999, a lot of it. Right. I reread Alan Light's book, Let's Go Crazy, which is all about this era and the making of Purple Rain. It's a great book and it's a good way to understand prints for people who are interested as just this is a particular case study that pretty much explains his entire career. Yeah. Hollywood didn't care at the time. Eventually, they are able to get Warner on board. None of the actors in the movie, maybe like two of them, the guy who played his dad, and I think Apollonia had some previous experience, but for the most part, they were all first-timers mm. working for cheap. They shot it in like seven weeks, mm-hmm. and so I think they're able to just get Warner Brothers to agree. Seven million budget, do it. Yeah. Can you just describe for anyone that hasn't watched this movie what Purple Rain the film is about? Yeah. Cavallo, who I previously mentioned, mentioned it, said we wanted it to be the Prince story without being the Prince story. There's an open question as to how biographical it is. And there's a lot going on, too. For a movie that's mostly musical performances, it's awfully convoluted in a way. There's always something happening. It's confusing. It all takes place around this club called First Avenue, which was a real club. That's where he played a lot of this stuff for the first time. Purple Rain, I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star. Mm -hmm. All those songs that you hear on the Purple Rain album 
are basically taken from these live performances that he did in 1983, basically a mm -hmm. year before Purple Rain comes out, this legendary performance. And there's kind of overdubs and edits to them. But if you listen to those songs, that three song stretch, they all sound kind of live. Mm -hmm. And that's why, because mm -hmm. they're all kind of live. And so basically there's only so many slots at First Avenue in the movie. And there's a rivalry between the revolution, <laughs> which is headed by Prince. Although in the movie, his character is named the kid. He's the only one in the movie who doesn't go by his real name. Right. Wendy and Lisa are called Wendy and Lisa in the movie. Morris Day is called Morris Day. I mean, Apollonia was named by Prince, right. but that still became her stage moniker. Right. But Prince is the only one who's called the kid. Right. And what complicates things is Apollonia comes to town. She wants to get involved <laughs> in the music business, even though she has no business in the music business and also can't act either. She's the sore thumb in this movie. She's beautiful. And that's hence her presence. I can't believe you mentioned that she's the one who had acting experience coming into this. I'm pretty sure she is. That is truly <laughs> shocking. And then she was on Falcon Crest after that, which I love. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and so she comes into town and the rivalry between the revolution and the time intensifies. Oh, I want to stay a while. See how it's done. <laughs> Morris Day is the leader of the time. And this is, by the way, a collaborator of Prince. In fact, one of the craziest things about this movie is that after a period of time, the time became a band. But the first time album basically is a Prince album with Morris Day on vocals. So Prince has essentially created his own competition. This movie is a test between the popularity of the time versus Prince. But the time basically right. is Prince, essentially. <laughs> Prince, by many a accounts was not a nice person and would denigrate people. I mean, Wendy talks about how Wendy Melvoin, yeah. who she became a member of the revolution after Des Dickerson left. Right. Des Dickerson, you could see in this movie briefly. And she talks about how he would just shame people into playing well. Like it mm. wasn't any kind of positive feedback. It was negative feedback. It yeah, was yeah. now you don't want to embarrass yourself like this again, right? Oh my God. And also to be criticized by someone who could probably do your part better than you if he could just be everybody in the band. That sounds yes, horrible. Exactly. And often was everybody in the band on yeah. his albums. Right. I mean, Around the World in the Day has barely any revolution on it, and it's billed as a Prince in the Revolution album. One of the members of the Revolution talked about how they literally Literally had not heard any of those songs before they yes. were finished, basically. Yes. <laughs> totally. Yes. And so in addition to what's happening at First Avenue, there is strife within the revolution because Wendy and Lisa have this song that they want Prince to write to. They have this track with chords and he's resisting that. And that ends up being Purple Rain. And the whole lesson is that he needs to collaborate and listen to them. <laughs> Every time we give you a song, you say you're going to use it, but you never do. You think we're doing something behind your back. You're just being paranoid as usual. Wendy. Shut up, Lisa, please. You should know by now that we wouldn't hurt you. You should know by now that we wouldn't put a dark cloud over your head. It's just to make you feel good. You felt this way with us before, remember? The nominees for Best Actress are... Fuck it, Wendy. Let's break. 
and then in addition to all of that and the burgeoning romance between Prince and Apollonia as Morris Day is mentoring her musically he's living at home with his parents his father is abusive a failed musician that ends up attempting suicide and it turns out that he actually didn't kill himself in the end which is also really weird it's a weird fucking movie in general i mean what a weird movie and the main thing that i walked away from having never seen it before is he does not come off particularly appealingly and i think that was sort of the thing that struck me when you were talking just now about what prince was actually like in real life well honestly he kind of comes off like a fucking asshole during most of this movie yes i was watching it with my boyfriend and the two of us were sitting there and we were just like he is so unappealing as the lead of this film yeah i have just been in this hole with prince just in awe of his talent, listening to all this music. I've been literally on like a Prince fucking acid trip for the last month. And this was the first time in the entire experience of the thing where I was like, ugh, he is not appealing in this movie at all to me. Yes. There's a whole scene where he dumps Apollonia off his motorcycle, tricks her into getting naked, and tricks her into getting into some body of water that's not the body of water he said it was so that she would get into it. Like Minnetonka. It's It's not not like Minnetonka. (laughs) And then speeds away from her on the motorcycle as a joke while she's standing there freezing and naked next to this body of water. Yes. Will you help me? Nope. Pardon me? Nope. Wanna know why? Nope. Because you wouldn't pass the initiation. What initiation? Well, for starters, you have to purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. What? You have to purify yourself in Lake Minnetonka. Hey, wait a minute, that's... Hold it. What? That ain't Lake Minnetonka. Don't believe it. How can you do that to me? Damn you. I'll kill you. There's nothing that comes during that scene that makes you feel like, oh, ha ha, this is cute or funny. It really is just like, what a fucking piece of shit. That's really the vibe I got from it. Yes. And the movie at the time was called out for its misogyny. Yeah. In fact, because Prince did not do any interviews for the entire stretch of the Purple Rain era, which includes the tour, but then he did well into the Around the World in a Day era, deigned to answer some questions, and he did for MTV. And one of them was, what do you have to say about the misogyny? Because there's also a scene where Morris Day and his sidekick, Jerome Benton, who, if you've ever seen the time play iconically, Jerome is the guy with the mirror Mm. that holds it up to Morris Day as he's performing. It's so iconic. Mm -hmm. They dump a woman into a dumpster. Prince also slaps Apollonia several several times. times in this movie. A lot of people were offended by what they saw as sexism in Purple Rain. Now, wait, wait. I didn't write Purple Rain. Someone else did. And it was a story, a fictional story, and it should be perceived that way, and nothing else. Violence is something that happens in everyday life, and we were only telling a story. And I wish it was looked at that way, but uh, I don't think anything we did was unnecessary. 
It's very like that. It's very in the same way that Morris Day calls him a faggot and yeah. you hear that kind of thing in an 80s movie. The 80s would just be mean. There's just a meanness to the movies. Mean. All right, so that's the movie. So let's talk about the music on Purple Rain. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. What's happening here in terms of the music? And obviously we should go song by song, probably through all of the songs on this record. But how is this taking the expansive qualities and pop instincts of 1999, building on the rougher sound or ideas that he had had on Dirty Mind and Controversy, expanded to some degree on 1999? And how do you view what he's doing here in terms of the evolution of Prince's musical style? Well, he's certainly into the chunky synths. He's still doing a lot of that. I mean, guitar was never far from the forefront of his music, but in some ways it's even more pronounced. Mm. Let's Go Crazy is very kind of like guitar forward. Almost like a rockabilly song in some ways. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you get something like the Beautiful Ones, which starts off completely electronic and then phases yeah. into a full band. There is more of a sense of jamming as well. I mean, you don't get the full breadth of it. It's also very hard, like before we started recording, we talked about what we were gonna do, and I know this is Pop Pantheon, so we're focusing on the singles and the major stuff, but it's actually almost like Tears of the Kingdom, the Zelda game, where there's an above ground world, but then there's an entire below ground world that is grafted onto the map. The entire map, you can go underground into this. Right. That's what Prince is like. There's so much stuff in the vaults, mm. on B-sides, so it's also very hard to talk in a concise way because there's just so much. Right. When Doves Cry famously is bereft of a bass line, which is what gives it that oomph. In one sense, I mean, I think When Doves Cry maybe is a good entree point in terms of just a song to zero in on because I feel like in many ways this is the definitive Prince song to many people. Yeah. It's fascinating too because I think that it does represent in a maybe very boiled down way some of the brilliance of the Prince thing because you've got the echoing sort of massive Lindrum sound through the whole thing, which obviously is just such an incredible signature. Prince and the drum machine feel like that could be its own kind of book because it just sort of feels like his obsession with drum machines is such an important element of his music. Like a lot of the time, he's sort of taking ideas of past genres or past musical ideas and paying very explicit homage to them. I mean, maybe let's go back to Let's Go Crazy for a second because here you have a song that's very clearly an homage to rockabilly, very clearly an homage in some ways to 50s and 60s rock, but also to punk rock. I mean, I hear the Ramones in this song. I mean, even that whole kind of, oh no, let's go remind 
reminded me so much of Blitzkrieg Bop. Of course. There's a lot of musical references to the past, but the things that make these songs feel signature to Prince and also signature to the time period and sort of forward thinking is the way that he sort of recontextualizes these songs on machines. The balance between the sort of organic instrumentation, because he was such a virtuoso of the live instrument, and then also his ability to go nuts on the drum machines feels like so incredibly important. So fast forwarding again out of Let's Go Crazy into When Doves Cry, it's a very signature Prince song to me because the drum machine is kind of the central driving force in the song. It's really a very spare production. Very. It's really just the kind of big Lindrum sound, that very synthetic sounding piano keyboardy noise. Mm -hmm. There's no bass, as you mentioned. And then the other thing, sorry, I have like a lot of things to say. And then the other thing <laughs> is that you have the humanity that comes through the record being him, which I think is kind of the way that a lot of Prince songs on balance sort of play with the machine verse human carnal spiritual sexual balance is like he allows himself and the way that he sounds completely like the most unbridled expression of humanity in so many ways with the way that he sort of screams hollers expresses his sexuality expresses the different ranges of his voice i feel like in some ways when doves cry is a really pure distillation of the way that that formula works because somehow through all of that machinery it's still the funkiest most alive sounding thing ever if that makes sense totally And it's also abstract in a way as well. When Doves Cry is still only a thing that exists in that song. Right. Much like Purple Rain. No raindrop is purple in that movie. It's about the mood. It's about him basically creating a new world with his words mm. that is a self-contained world. That is what it sounds like when Doves Cry and nothing else. kind of like open question you just kind of have to go with him basically and he will show you what he's talking about right and that's kind of the psychedelic element of it which obviously will expand on future records but when i was thinking about when dubs cry i don't question these things that much because that song is so much just a part of my musical dna and thought process yeah. but i'm like what the fuck is this song about what is when dubs cry dig if you will a picture you and i engaged in a kiss and then all of a sudden we're dreaming of a courtyard and oceans and violet and bloom and then we're talking about his mother and father it's almost like free association dada is bullshit i don't know what he's talking about animals strike curious poses is my favorite line <laughs> animals strike curious poses what the fuck is that some of it is like is this a bad acid trip yeah because a lot of princess songs they also teeter on the verge of ecstasy and then also something darker lurking in the corner and this song has that vibe to it to me where it's at once this incredibly euphoric pop song and at the same time if you really start listening to it you're like it reminds me of bad psychedelic trips i've had oh yeah i was terrified of this song it's scary 
Sorry. <laughs> I was conscious when this song was out. Yeah. I was a little, little kid. Mm-hmm. And it took me forever to get into Prince. I mean, I was primed. I loved pop music. Yeah. I loved Michael Jackson. I loved Madonna. I liked George Michael. Right. I did not get Prince. I was too young for Prince. I didn't get him. It wasn't actually until Bat Dance. Oh, the Bat Dance. <laughs> I, like the rest of the country, loved Bat Dance because of Batman and because of the Batman fever. Yeah. It really wasn't until Get Off, which coincided with puberty. Right, right. That I was like, oh, now I get Prince. Then I went back and I listened to the hits, the B-sides that came out a year or two after Diamonds and Pearls. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, I get him totally and I love him and I can't believe that I was ever scared of When Doves Cry. But I was terrified of this song as a kid. It's so weird and uncanny. It's so weird and uncanny, but it also has another big X Factor part of Prince, which is it's got serious heat. Yeah. I mean, he says, you feel the heat between me and you. This song has fucking heat to it. You really can feel the tension and the sexual power of it, which as at once alluring and terrifying. It's got that kind of vibe to it. And I think some of that has to do with all the stuff that he does, the master work of his production and singing and lyrics. And some of it just has to do with who Prince is, because Prince is that. In some ways, Prince doesn't have to do much to embody that princeliness, because there's just something about him that is equal parts alluring, sexy, strange, and scary at the same time. And I think that in some ways, he just embodies that no matter what he's doing. Yes. And this song sounds like how Prince often comes across persona-wise in his music. Maybe that union is why this song is such a success beyond just the fact that it's so catchy and so indelible from this period. It's quintessential. It's quintessential. All right, so let's talk about some other songs on this record. I mean, obviously there's a lot of hits here. Another favorite of mine that I think is really fascinating and strange and signature to Prince is I Would Die For You, Yeah, which too. is like half ballad, half electropop, a rhythmic drum programming marvel. What do you make of this song as maybe another emblem of sort of what the Prince thing is here on this record? Yeah, it's so arpeggiated. It's almost like, let's say, Giorgio Moroder. Yeah. It's kind of got that unquestionable electronic DNA happening. Right. You could see how Timberland could listen to this and be inspired by his kind of arrhythmic, spacious productions. Exactly. It's so invested in the mystique of him, even though he's probably singing from the point of view of not necessarily Prince, but a character, but it's hard not to see it as Prince describing Prince. I'm not a woman, I'm not a man, I'm something that you'll never understand. Right. That is kind of what Prince meant to pop music at the time. And also a lot of the God imagery is coming through here in a bigger way. I mean, he's always talked about Let's Go Crazy being about God versus the devil Uh and the elevator is the devil. De-elevator. Yes, exactly. But in I Would Die For You, he says quite plainly, I'm your Messiah. Right. I would die for you. It's that union of the sexual and the spiritual. Yes. I don't remember who I was reading, but this was really fascinating to me. Talking about how Al Green and Marvin Gaye and that generation of black male soul singers were dealing with a lot of conflict between sexuality and God and seeing them as opposing forces. And one of the innovations of Prince's worldview and thematic obsession with sex was sort of the union of God and sex. Right. The idea that sex was a way to access the divine or the carnality was a way to express spirituality or to make contact with the other side. 
outside, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you believe in God, then you must believe that God made sex. So how would that not be a way of getting closer to God, having sex, living through his will? Yes, 100%. And I think that that's maybe something that we take for granted now, but it's interesting to see that as kind of like a radical way to approach soul music or something that was not necessarily common. And it kind of gives new meaning to the idea of I would die for you because I was thinking about the idea of death as a way of crossing over into the afterlife in a sense. It's sort of the intermingling, not just of sex and God, but also of romance God and all of these ideas that are right here. And then what's so brilliant, I think, about a lot of these Purple Rain songs is they contain so many ideas and so many innovative production flourishes and yet really operate very well as just incredibly catchy pop songs. The way that kind of clipped upward dive for you is just a brilliant kind of syncopated rhythm. His ability for these songs to sound pop accessible and yet still sound avant-garde and strange. Again, it like kind of goes back to our earlier conversation is I feel like pretty much unparalleled in pop music history. Yeah, it's like Bjork. Yes. It's like Timbaland. But Bjork was never this big. No, she was never this big. And then of course that song is connected to Baby I'm a Star, which almost feels like if you took I Would Die For You and just turned it into a more straightforward, big up-tempo funk song, it's almost like their twin flames in that way. Yeah, yeah. I Would Die For You swings right into Baby I'm a Star. It makes total sense. It's funny because I think it fits thematically into the movie because the guy is aspiring for stardom. Yes. Unlike Prince, who is already a star. But in some ways, I thought about the lyrics like, you might not know it now, but baby, I are, I'm a star, whatever. It's not Mm -hmm. grammatically correct, but it works in the song. I was thinking maybe that's a statement of purpose in some ways about Prince's ambitions with this record. Kind of like, hey, you don't realize it, but I can be the biggest pop star on the planet. In a way, this song serves as a mission statement for what Purple Rain was for Prince in a meta way, not just in terms of what it's doing in the movie. For sure. This was the calculated next step and it worked. Let's talk a little bit about the song Purple Rain, which I already know, Rich, is a song you think is kind of an overrated Prince hit. I think some ways maybe people might think of When Doves Cry and Purple Rain as the two signature Prince songs. Totally. And I mean, if you look on Spotify... Purple Rain is his most streamed Mm -hmm. track, twice as much as When Doves Cry. It has 414 million versus 216. So why do you think this song is that? And also, why do you think it's kind of overrated? I was listening to the Alan Light book again, and there's a really good point that somebody makes about how it's a standard in a way that's missing some of Prince's idiosyncrasies. Right. It's straightforward. It's straightforward so that you aren't necessarily, I think it was Rob Tannenbaum, actually, because I think he wrote a book about karaoke where people who perform that song in karaoke are not necessarily Mm. imitating Prince in the way that everybody who sings Kiss is or When Doves Cry. There's just something more universal, something more Great American Songbook about Purple Rain that makes it so it's everybody's song. And that song has been covered so much. It's not Hallelujah, but it's not not Hallelujah. That's honestly a good comp. That's a weirdly good comp. I mean, Celine Dion covered Purple Rain when I saw her in Vegas. You know, everybody has sung Purple Rain. So I love that it's that kind of a ballad and it feels like Americana and it also has that Lindrum thing too. I think that's really cool because it gives it the cohesion that it needs to be on this album. But 
I don't know. There's just something about the chorus that drags kind of, I don't know. My niece knows that song and she knows no other Prince song. Right, right. At that point, it's like, what's going on here? I don't know. It's missing a lot of the eccentricity, I think. Uh-huh. Even though it's a song called Purple Rain and what the fuck is Purple Rain? I think it kind of maybe goes back to something I was positing to you earlier in the combo, which is that in some ways there's elements to this era of Prince where he was just kind of like, let me show you that I can do anything that I want to do. Perhaps this was just his moment of being like, okay, and I can also write a straightforward lighters in the air arena rock anthem. Yes. I'm going to show you that if I wanted to, I could dominate that space, making straight ahead, preachy arena rock ballads, like whatever. That is how it's set up in the Alan Light book where he was really into Bob Seger at the time. Right. And understood that if he wanted to reach the masses, he needed to do it with a power ballad. Right. And it was also originally conceived as a country duet with Stevie Nicks, which was crazy. Yes. God, wouldn't that be interesting to know what that would have sounded like? He asked her to write on it and then she froze yes. and she couldn't do it. Which maybe speaks to how people viewed Prince at this time, which is that even before he had reached the peak of his success, other stars of the upper echelon of pop already saw him as obviously a god of the space. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think they hooked up because she reached out after she wrote Stand Back while humming along to Little Red Corvette, which you can kind of hear this similar melody. And then he came in and he played keyboard on it and whatever. But yes, he was already well respected at this point. Mm. Last thing I kind of want to point out about the music on this record that I think is notable is even through 1999, there's a signature lewdness to Prince's sex songs yes. that exists on all the records. Even though 1999 was also a record in which he was striving for a certain degree of mainstream success, you still have songs on there and lyrics on that record that make your jaw drop and you're like, what the fuck? I mean, forget, obviously, songs about fucking your sister and whatever. There's a signature lewdness to the early period of Prince's career that essentially vanishes on this record. Well, Darling Nikki. Took the words right out of my mouth because I think Darling Nikki is the one and only moment on this record where we get lewd Prince, whereas most of the other songs here are, of course, sexual nature because Prince is singing them, but do not have that signature, abrasive, shocking, jaw-dropping lewdness. knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. Darling Nikki, of course, famously the impetus for Tipper Gore and the entire backlash against Prince's lyrical content that leads to the creation of the explicit album label sticker, which is a whole other episode of the show that we could talk about the way that Prince kind of invented the explicit adult album concept and all of the kind of irritating social implications therein. Yes. And it's hilarious and I think speaks to just how big Purple Rain is because Prince has made way more nasty songs in the past that just haven't risen to this level of attention. But of course, because Purple Rain was the biggest album on earth, Darling Nikki and its, you know, allusions to masturbation, et cetera, et cetera, caught the attention of of, you know, mainstream yes. political and social culture in a way that changed the music industry forever. But I do think The Beautiful Ones is an interesting example of the kind of purposeful chasteness, or I don't know if the chasteness is coming from the mainstream ambition. Could be a little bit. Or if it does have to do with what it will later have to do with, which is that he does become more explicitly kind of Christian and he will stop swearing completely in his records at a certain point. Right. But I was listening to The Beautiful Ones and I was thinking about it in contrast to a song like Do Me Baby. There is this whole subgenre 
genre of Prince sex jams. They have a very specific sound to them. They have the big lindrum on them. They have that quivering falsetto, that quintessential quivering sexual falsetto. And also obviously the primal screaming. On this song, it's like the do you want me because I want you absolutely animalistic screaming thing. But this song doesn't have any of the lyrics in it that you sort of expect up to this point from these sort of Prince songs, which I thought felt notable and worth saying, perhaps as an illustration of what he's trying to do on this music. And notably, that song replaced another song, Electric Intercourse, which, mm. you know. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Enough said, exactly. I think the underscoring point is that either something is shifting in Prince's artistry here and worldview and aesthetic POV, or the desire to make this album as big as possible. Definitely, there is a notable scaling back of the button-pushing lewdness. Prince always sounds lewd and sexually boundary-pushing, yes. whether he's trying to or not. He doesn't need to sort of talk about fucking his sister in order to right. like get the vibe that he might fuck his sister. But- it's a notable lyrical choice here, and I think maybe speaks to the ambitions of this record that most of these songs dispense with that. Absolutely. He knew there was a game to play, and he was playing it, so it only makes sense to surmise that this was also calculated to make him appeal to the masses. Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode? Well, if you made it this far, of course you are. But there's actually more to Pop Pantheon than you're hearing here on the main feed. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're going long on new albums like Olivia Rodrigo's Guts, Doja Cat's Scarlet, and Kim Petras's Feed the Beast, digging in on all the most talked about new singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Robin's Honey, Mariah Carey's Glitter, Janet's The Velvet Rope, and so much more with all your favorite pop pantheon guests all this plus you'll get access to our discord channel input on future episodes of the show and so much more so sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode all right so let's talk about the reception to this record because obviously this is the pinnacle of Prince's commercial success. It has two number one singles in Let's Go Crazy and When Doves Cry, Purple Rain goes number two, I Would Die For You goes number eight. The record goes many, many times platinum, I think 25 times platinum across the world. The film is also a success, which is truly shocking when you watch the film. But it was huge. Can you talk about how big of a fucking star Prince was at this moment and how this record resituates him in the pop universe from how we were referencing him just a year earlier? He's just basically one of the bigs at this point. This is when he joins the Mount Rushmore of 80s pop and never really, despite the fact that this is his unsurpassed peak, even though there's singles here and there that are just as iconic as singles on here, like Kiss, I think is probably as big as When Doves Cry in the ultimate story of Prince. Yeah. This just cements him because it's just such a moment that he's just annihilated. He just did exactly what he showed up to do. Just undeniable. This is just his moment and he's one of the greats. What do you think it is about this music in this moment and this film and all of it? Is there anything that you can think of that can help us understand why this hits so fucking big at this exact moment in time? Firstly, I think that it's because it all was at once. It became a major event. Mm. It was kind of a rolling event. Yeah. I think when Doves Cry was released maybe six weeks before the Purple Rain album, which was released about a month before the movie. Mm. So people are getting ready, getting used to it. And mm. it probably speaks to the power of just having a major, amazing first single. He just hit it out of the park with that. Yeah. That becomes an instant classic. And he's 
pried the world open for him. People are ready to receive him and super excited about him. Yeah. And the fact that the movie really does take advantage of the music video format, putting it on the big screen, allowing people to congregate around this, that's novel. Right. It's not just like you're listening to it. There's a whole visual world that exists as well. That's another thing too. You can say what you want to about Purple Rain, just like you can say what you want to about Bohemian Rhapsody. But the reason that Bohemian Rhapsody and Purple Rain did so well is because those people know how to present themselves as rock stars. Rami Malek deserves that Oscar for the stage performances. That's what he won it for. It wasn't for the big teeth dramatic stuff. And that's why a lot of movies of that time, like Her Smell and Vox Lux, were huge flops because Elizabeth Moss and Natalie Portman are not pop stars. And this is a thing that people keep missing every single time. People think, oh, I can act like a pop star. No, you can't. Right. And that's why A Star is Born was successful. That's why A Star is Born was successful. That's why The Rose remains a pinnacle because of the fucking performance because you have to be able to embody Mm. the pop star there's a lot of stuff that I see that the pop star thing just does not work I'm not watching a pop star and I know that and so I cannot suspend my disbelief there was no need to suspend disbelief by the way Prince of the Revolution are miming the entire thing he's lip syncing they're not playing the instruments all of that's recorded and you can't tell right at all that just looks like a live performance it's absolutely incredible I mean that movie comes alive during those sequences exactly the rest of it is just fucking bizarre and grating in some ways but when those performances happen happened, it's undeniable. Undeniable. I feel like the other thing that's worth noting, and I was kind of getting at this earlier, is this is a really reorganizing time for both pop stars and pop music at the time. I mean, we're in the twilight of disco. There is this feeling of anything goes and someone needs to step into the void and create the future of the sound of this music. It's also a time of massive technological innovation. The way music is getting made in studios is changing on a huge scale level. I mean, yes. the thing about Prince, I think, and his music maybe speaks to this moment, is here you have someone that is kind of stepping into the void and saying, here's what pop music sounds like in this new moment. This is genreless. It's pulling from lots of different past genres. It feels unconfined and it also feels incredibly expansive because of its ability to mix mechanization and computerized technology with sounds that are familiar to us. And his visionary ability to do that feels very pertinent to this moment in the same way that the film creating a visual world for an album to live in also feels very singular to this exact moment. I think it's that confluence of events that makes Prince and exactly what he's doing coming together and allowing someone as weird as him to become so huge. He just happens to be kind of like setting the tone for what this exact moment needed or something like that. And I think that that was something that I was toying with as I was wondering what made this so seismic at this moment. Just aside from Prince being Prince, which is the other obvious answer. Right. Aside from Prince being Prince and just seizing the moment. Right. Like I said before, he showed up and did what he came to do. And it worked. Yeah, 100%. And I think a great sort of jumping off point to discuss what happens next, which is that Prince achieves everything that he wants to with this record and more, I'm assuming. And then sort of seems like he decides that maybe that isn't for him totally. Yeah. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> Literal buyer's remorse is how I would describe 1985's Around the World in a Day, which on the Prince prolific schedule comes out like a year after Purple Rain and is a massively different album. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on on Around the World in the Day, what it sounds like, what the themes are, and how it's different in pretty much every way from Purple Rain, if that is how you see it as well? Well, I think the most shocking thing about it was that it arrived with basically zero advance notice. There was no first there was nothing. It right. kind of just showed up. I mean, people were aware 
that it was coming out and that's all they were aware of at the time right it's often referred to as psychedelic Mm -hmm. it's a really hard thing to put your finger on what exactly that means it's kind of a mood it's a feeling Mm -hmm. the first lyrics on this record are open your heart open your mind And so we get things like finger symbols and string sections. The kaleidoscopic album cover was compared to Sgt. Pepper's. It feels kind of like Sgt. Pepper's. Right. And Magical Mystery Tour also. Exactly. Magical Mystery Tour. It's kind of blissed out in that way. So blissed out that there aren't really a ton of hooks on it. There's a Middle Eastern influence here and there. Which is also very Beatles psychedelic period. Exactly. One thing that was very interesting is a lot of people noted that from the jump and he really bristled at that. He did. He made some sort of really derogatory (laughs) comment towards the Beatles, which is actually fucking hilarious. Amazing. He was like, they were good for what they did in their time, but I don't know if that shit would fly now or something like that. (laughs) Talk about an arrogant ass motherfucker. My God. But honestly, taking the piss out of the Beatles is also one of my favorite activities. So Godspeed to him. I know, I love it. Well, here's what he said about it because during this album cycle, he he resumed doing press and he told this Detroit DJ, the electrifying mojo, I sort of had an FU attitude, meaning that I was making something for myself and my fans and the people who supported me through the years, I wanted to give them something and it was like my mental letter. Mm. And those people are the ones who wrote me back telling me that they felt what I was feeling. So he's kind of pushing back against the mass adulation and sorting out the fly-by-nights from the real fans. It's a really interesting move, Rich, because you don't often find pop stars that are willing to do shit like this. You more often find the other thing, which is like, how do I recreate this as much as I can, as frequently as I can, for as long as I can? This transition from Purple Rain to Around the World in the Day tells you a lot about what you need to know about Prince, which is that he is somebody that feels like he can do a lot of different things, and as I mentioned, is in the rare position where pop megastardom is just one in a bag of tricks. And also somebody that I think trusts and goes with his impulses more so than he does with sort of a deep need to continue to top himself in the ways that other people feel that he should or that our culture might feel like he should. And someone actually posited a question to me in a listener mailbag episode recently where they were talking about Doja Cat and they were talking about how Doja Cat clearly seems to be pivoting out of her sort of Dr. Luke era right now. And is there precedence for this? And the first thing that came to mind to me was this. I was just thinking to myself, it isn't that common, but there are precedents for this. George Michael. Michael too. Listen without prejudice. George Michael. I think there's a way you could frame Kanye is doing this. Lord. I mean, there's people that you can sort of see who have done this too. Yeah. But it's not that common. And this one-two punch sort of speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, I feel like Prince airs more on the side of trusting his artistic muse than he does his commercial one. I'd say that that's what I walked away from this entire period of Prince's music thinking is that ultimately he's not really driven by commercial instincts as much. He has them and he does want that too, but I think that his artistic impulse side dominates. It does, but it's a balance. It's like when Homer brings back the lobster from the restaurant so he can raise it and ends up falling in love with Pinchy, but he throws it into the (laughs) aquarium and then it starts to go belly up. So he puts some salt in the tank and then the fish go belly up and he has to kind of go between enough salt and enough fresh water so that the fish and the lobster can both be up Right. That's kind of like Prince. He's always trying to get that balance. Yes. He's certainly not willing to relinquish 
wish. Right. I mean, you don't put a song like Raspberry Beret on this album and release it as the eventual first single if you don't want people humming along. That song was undeniable. Undeniable and also a really great expression of how he could have taken the psychedelic flourishes and made a poppier record. Because to me, Raspberry Beret fits with the rest of the music. It has those big orchestral elements to it, which you definitely don't really hear on Purple Rain. Even the word Raspberry Beret, it has this trippy psychedelic feel to it. But yet, obviously, as you mentioned, it's really the only song on here that has that massive hook that you would have expected from the Purple Rain songs. He could have actually given you a little bit of a smoother transition into a more artsy period if he had wanted to, but he clearly, for the most part on this music, Rick really didn't want to because Raspberry Beret, like both fits aesthetically or deals in some of the same aesthetic ideas as other songs in this record, but is the only real poppy pop song on here, I feel like. Although Pop Life went top 10 as well. Right. Pop Life is very much like America, which is another song on this record, where he seems to be getting at some kind of grief, some kind of complaint he has, but he's not exactly straightforward about it. And it's kind of a question as to what do you really think about this? Pop life, everybody needs a thrill. We all got a space to fill. Everybody can't be on top, but life ain't real funky unless it's got that pop. Right. It's kind of like, is that ironic or is he buying into it? I mean, clearly, no, he had kind of renounced that there is some bone he has to pick with this world he finds himself in. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly like Joni Mitchell, his hero, who I I think starting with For the Roses kind of started the song cycle about I'm a musician, I'm popular, and I kind of hate it, but I need to be doing this, that treadmill kind of thing. I heard it in the wind last night, sounded like applause. Did you get around resounding for you way up here? Pop Life, I think we could actually probably interpret much like For the Roses, where she's already basically singing about when she's not going to be popular anymore, even though her big album was the one after that. She was already preparing her grave at that point, just because she knew exactly how it was going to go. That's interesting too, and I think maybe an interesting foray to a question I was dying to ask you, which is, how does Prince deal with biography and self-interrogation in his music and lyrics? Because it's not in the ways of a conventional pop star. I know we keep coming up with Madonna or even Michael... But thinking about Madonna, similarly in this period, starts getting into records where she, you know, very straightforwardly is addressing her issues with her mother and addressing her issues with her father. And there's this literal approach to biography that becomes a pretty big paragon of pop stardom in general. I mean, you think about Taylor Swift, you think about all these people. This is how they operate. We reveal more of ourselves. We talk more about our personal lives. Prince is very slippery in this way because I do think his music is insanely personal. And yet at the same time, as you said, he's always incredibly hard to grasp. The stories can be hard to grasp. Who he is can be slippery and contradictory and weird. How do you feel like Prince addresses his self in his music? He often addresses himself by splintering himself off into a bunch of different characters. And even Batman, which you can make fun of Batman, but every single song is addressed as coming from a different character in that movie. He's obsessed with persona. He's basically obsessed with the medium that he set out for himself. He's like, I can do all of this stuff here. I can be this high-pitched woman character 
if I want to be and I can mm. be spooky electric or I can reference the devil on my shoulder that made me do these albums that I'm not releasing and all this stuff and then he'll have something super straightforward like Papa on Come where he says don't abuse your children or they'll turn out like me right don't abuse children else they turn out like me or the b-side hello which chronicles his entire ordeal with we are the world which he famously sat out of because he hated the song and didn't want to participate in that shit and also had a weird rivalry with michael a real rivalry with michael jackson i mean i think prince was right to not want to participate in that bullshit <laughs> but i think that that more than anything took him down a notch in the public conception. Right. It's more that he knew what was genuinely cool. Exactly. And he was like, I'm not going to sing on some bullshit. We talk about the cool person's pop star. I mean, he's kind of the ultimate cool person's pop star. Michael was a fucking cheese ball. Yes. He was cool. You know, and I think that part of him probably bristled at what was required of being a big tent pop star. Exactly. There was the arrogance too, though. And the arrogance. Because <laughs> Wendy said that he, right after Purple Rain, he got this thing like, you motherfuckers will buy anything. Right. And so I think that was part of it too. Uh-huh. Like how far can I push that idea? Exactly. Similar to Madonna at her peak in Erotica. And you can tell that she felt that way because of how much she complained about its reception. It's like, you don't make an album like Erotica expecting it to be embraced. You do that shit because you are trying to be edgy and right. you know that you're taking a risk. Right. And then when you take a risk that some people aren't going to listen to it and then you're happy with that. But she complained and complained and complained about it. And I know a lot of that was wrapped up in misogyny, obviously, but she also complained about the artistic feedback that she got. But I think the point is that if Around the World in the Day had sold what Purple Rain had, I don't think Prince would have complained. I think he would have been happy with that and been like, well, of course. But also, he was willing to take that risk and then he didn't really complain about it after. And I think at the end of the day, Madonna's commercial instincts override her art. It's the opposite configuration. Yeah. And also, she's just a different artist in the sense that she's so beholden to who she's working with and all of these kind of things in a way that Prince is obviously not. And also, translating trends. I mean, Prince wanted to invent. Prince wanted to create. Yes. And Madonna wanted to repurpose and contextualize. Right. The last two things I want to say about Around the World in the Day is when you were trying to describe the musical aesthetic, the most fascinating element I think that comes out of all of this is even as this music is so different than Purple Rain, and it's also incorporating all of these influences that we hadn't really heard on Purple Rain, whether that be psychedelic Beatles stuff, hippie free love, whatever, everything comes out in the wash, like really sounding like Prince. It's so different than Purple Rain in all these ways, and yet still sounds so quintessentially Prince. Definitely. And I think a lot of that has to do with just who Prince is. A lot of it has to do with the continued employment, I think, of the machines, of the drum machines that are present through all of these homages to 60s and 70s psychedelic rock and all of that kind of stuff. A couple things I wanted to point out is that the sort of strain of misogyny that we had been pulling at. I mean, Raspberry Beret is essentially about taking a girl's virginity, and it's a strange song. It's such a bright, upbeat, fun-sounding song, but when you dig under the hood, it's a little bit creepy. Yeah. A little stalkery. And then, of course, an important element in setting up the next record, Parade, is the song America, which you brought up earlier, which is another in a strain of Prince's socially conscious. Maybe this is also instructive in understanding around the world today. I mean, Prince is a product of the hippie generation. I mean, Prince grew up up through all of this protest music, through the invention of rock and roll as counterculture, the Vietnam War, civil rights, all of these things. So I was thinking about America as his born in the USA or something like that. Obviously, it's not anthemic in that way, but it is this almost sardonic attack on communism and one of Prince's percolating fears of nuclear war. It's something that comes up a lot in his music.
and I think maybe an important entree to talking about Parade. So to wrap up around the world in the day, record sells a fraction of what Purple Rain had. Raspberry Beret goes to number two, Pop Life goes to number seven, but the record only goes double platinum, which pales in comparison to Purple Rain. So in 1986, he comes out with his next record, which is Parade. Talk about Parade and how Parade is either building on or different than Around the World in the Day and what you kind of make of this record on a top line level. So Parade is the soundtrack to Under the Cherry Moon, which is his follow-up to Purple Rain. Right. It's a very different movie. It's as different of a movie as Around the World in a Day is a different album to Purple Rain. Right, totally. The making of the film, I thought, was an admission that perhaps there was a commercial slide and he was trying to kind of replicate some of the formula of Purple Rain here. Oh, definitely. But as difficultly as possible, it's black and white. Right. (laughs) There isn't a band. He's now taken Jerome Benton away from Morris Day, his sidekick, and said, now you're my sidekick. So what we didn't talk about is that basically Morris Day got the best reviews for Purple Rain. People were ecstatic about him, thought his comic relief was the best thing about the movie in terms of the acting. So then Prince, I mean, it just seems really obvious that he's like, no, I want that. Right. So I'm going to do this comedic role and have Jerome Benton be my sidekick in this story about two gigolos on the French Riviera who hear about this woman named Mary, which, by the way, that part was originally offered to Madonna, who didn't take it. Oh, whoa. <laughs> I think she did Shanghai Surprise instead. Wow, great choice. She should have just done Under the Cherry Moon, but fair. Played by Chris and Scott Thomas, actually. She turns 21, and so she becomes eligible to inherit this trust. And so Prince, Christopher Tracy is his character, is going to get his hooks into her because that's what he does. He just cares about money. You ever been to Miami, baby? I have. Garçon! You forgot one. There's nothing in Miami but people who weren't born there and drugs. Yeah, and they know more than you'll ever learn in your little small sheltered world. Yeah! Really now? What only God knows. Garçon! Avez-vous un crayon? That's French. I understand. And the movie's really just that. It's a very simple plot, convoluted needlessly, lots of physical acting. I mean, Prince is funny is the thing, so I understand the impulse to do a comedic role, but he's not funny in the way that this movie is requiring him to be funny. And the movie's also a huge flop. So what about the music on Parade? What is happening here exactly? There's a lot more spare funk, I would say, and it's more of a turn toward the melodic. There are more obvious hooks than there were on Around the World. There's also this kind of Broadway musical sensibility that he has going on in Do You Lie? And also Under the Cherry Moon is kind of a torch song. Parade is one of my favorite Prince albums. It's not quite Sign of the Times for me, but it's very, very close. And also, Kiss is on this record. Kiss is an iconic song of his. He stole that. He wrote that song, but then he gave it to Maserati, a group that he was mentoring. David Z, who was the brother of Bobby Z, the revolution drummer, he engineered Prince's demo. He was producing Maserati. So Prince gives him this blues number that he wrote on guitar. Kiss says, here you go. Don't be rich, be my girl. 
David Z does magic with it. I mean, weird shit running the bass line through the drum machine, uh-huh. hitting the input output to create this weird rhythm. The way that the song seems to ascend. Yes. You can't even like really describe Kiss, you know? Yeah. As much as I would love for a Prince have done that, he didn't. That was David Z. And then Prince heard it the next day and said, that's too good. I need that back. And he was right. Well, he's right. To me, this feels also like an extension of when doves cry yes. in the sense that it's very much like funk filtered through a machine and then stripped for parts. Like it's so bare bones. There's no bass line. It's centered around this syncopated rhythmic drum machine noise, essentially. Mm-hmm. Then there's kind of the live funk guitar that runs through the entire thing. And then you have the quivering falsetto with the sort of syncopated stilted lyrical vocalizations. I think that kind of mechanized funk stripped for parts felt like an aesthetic idea that runs through a lot of this record. It's like, what would funk sound like made on drum machines and without the lushness of the full band or something like that? Exactly. New Position is a good example of that. That's got a little steel drum thing going on. Right. Also, Kiss is another sexual come on song, which is a very signature Prince thing, but is also grappling with, I think, a theme that becomes more pronounced through these next couple of records, which is Prince half in the vein of the sort of anything goes carnality of the early work, but also dealing with a creeping conservatism or something. The way that he starts to wonder about in future music, whether he needs to settle down, he needs to stop being promiscuous, he wants to actually stop having one night stands. There's interesting lyrics in here like, you've got to not talk dirty, baby, if you want to impress me, is a very interesting lyric to come from somebody who once again has a song about literally fucking his sister. can't be too flirty mama. There's all of these terms setting that also feels misogynistic at the same time because it's also going, here's how a woman needs to act to impress me, blah, 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 blah. So this song is really interesting because it's an expression in some ways of a lot of Prince themes and ideas we've heard and experienced before in past music, but also elements of the future parts of Prince that are coming into form here of the religious aspects of him, the parts that are sort of wondering about the carnality and sexuality. It's a very fascinating song, but also, again, as a lot of the great Prince singles are an incredibly catchy, amazing pop song. Yeah, what a gift. What a song. This song is just absolutely amazing. And the other thing that I wanted to say about Parade is there's like a Tumblr-esque quality to it. The songs are short. They almost feel like ideas that in a way that really works for the record. He didn't overthink. Here's one idea. Here's the next idea. They seg into each other, but sound kind of different from each other. There's this feeling of ideas tumbling out of his head that I thought was kind of an interesting quality to this record as well. Yeah, I agree. It is 
is kaleidoscopic while remaining in black and white. Yes. We can't move on without mentioning Sometimes It Snows in April, which is one of his masterpiece songs. It's actually about the movie. He's talking about Christopher Tracy in it, who, spoiler alert, dies at the end of the movie, and it's about his death. Spoiler alert for everyone that's about to go watch the (laughs) masterpiece Under the Cherry Moon. Sorry. That song retained a new poignancy when he died in April 2016. Oh, I didn't make that connection. I was reading that that song kind of got a second life after his death, but I didn't realize that that was why. Sometimes it snows in April Sometimes I feel so bad So bad Sometimes I wish That life was never ending This record, honestly, was one of my favorite discoveries from the deep. I never listened to it in Toto, and I like it so much more than Around the World in a Day. It's incredibly weird, but extremely fun to listen to. And I think it is an important precursor to Sign of the Times, because I feel like what Sign of the Times does so well is sort of provide an all-encompassing look at everything that Prince can do. It sort of feels like the ultimate expression of, here's the totality of everything I've mastered. It's like the master at peak mastery in some ways. And I think this record is that in many ways. It's insane how many styles it traverses while still feeling like Prince. It's one of the marvels, I think, of listening to Prince's music is how much it can sort of suck into it and all the things and ideas that it can deal with and all the ways that he can evolve as an artist and change and be different from album to album. And yet it all feels of a piece in this way that is so rare. I mean, I know we've talked about Madonna a lot, but her music sounds really different depending on who she's working with. Her music really changes changes it aesthetically. With Prince, it's like, yes, he's evolving. You never feel like a sense of staleness. Not yet. You don't yet feel a feeling of staleness on any of these records, but they all feel so signature and quintessential. And there's elements that he sort of is able to artfully bring in, like whether it's the Lindrum noise or what it is that can kind of link all of this together while still feeling like he's trying so many different new things. And this record really felt like a great manifestation or expression of that talent, I felt like. Yeah, I totally agree. So this record produces a number one hit in Kiss, obviously, as Rich mentioned, probably like the third in the trifecta of quintessential Prince songs with When Doves Cry, Purple Rain, and Kiss, but is not a huge seller on the level of Purple Rain. It goes platinum, and that leads us to Sign of the Times, which is, I think, many critics' favorite Prince album. I think many people think of it as the peak of his artistry. It is a double album that is the product of maybe four other albums that Prince is concurrently working on in the process of making it. Yes. I guess maybe this is a good point before we even talk about Sign of the Times to talk about Prince as a critical darling. I'm curious about how in his time he's perceived critically. I mean, a lot of times we've talked about on the show how pop isn't taken particularly seriously by critics during this period. And now, obviously, we think of Prince as one of the great masters of music history. Was all of this music critically lauded in the way that we think of it now during this period? I think it was Dirty Mind that really changed a lot of people over. Yeah. From listening to Alan Light's book, I know that Purple Rain, the album, got four stars in Rolling Stone. It wasn't the lead review because Born in the USA came out right around that time and that got five stars. Mm. But there was that appreciation I do think that Sign of the Times kind of comes along and knocks everybody's socks off and gets famously at the time the highest 
amount of points that a Paz and Jop, that's the Village Voices annual critics poll of albums and singles of the year, it got the highest numbers that any number one album had ever gotten at that point. Just unanimous acclaim. Mm. If you go to its Wikipedia and you just look at the little box of reviews, it's like 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, five stars, five stars. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody has given it less than a perfect review. So he definitely had respect. And also keep in mind that all of that was secondary to his momentum. And another thing that we're barely touching on are the tours. Right. He can sell tickets and deliver to rapturous audiences. And he's, goes without saying, an electrifying live performer, one of the greatest that has ever stepped on stage. Yes, especially around this time. I'm not super well-versed with every single tour, but I think the Nude Tour, if anybody out there really wants to like see him at his peak, watch the Nude Tour. There's a few of the shows that are on YouTube. There's this Mm. absolutely otherworldly performance of Nothing Compares to You that he does. His performance of Nothing Compares to You on the piano during the nude tour, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Anybody who can recognize musicianship knows how gifted this guy is. Right. So it's inevitable, just in the most raucest kind of way, that Prince is just appealing to the most base instincts of the people who are writing about music. He's a guitar god. Right. He can be a pop superstar and a rock god at the same time. Exactly. So let's talk about Sound of the Times. I mean, what is the conception of this record? Well, it's a labored story, I know. Okay. Again, you can't really talk about the music that was released without talking about the music that wasn't released. (laughs) So I think a sheer assertion of Will, he's like, okay, I'm going to make a double disc Dream Factory and then decides not to do that and says, okay, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to make an album pitch shifting my voice up of eight funky tracks called Camille and we'll just release it as that and Camille will compete with Prince. And then he's like, no, I'm not going to do that either. Now I'm going to release a three disc set called Crystal Ball. And a lot of this stuff from the original Dream Factory configuration is going to end up on Crystal Ball and does in fact end up on Sign of the Times as well. He's got too many ideas. He can't even get them out fast enough. And Camille does actually get pressed. There are test pressings of Camille that eventually make their way to the market. Jack White famously bought one, said, oh, I'm going to release this. Supposedly he was going to do that. He still hasn't. Camille actually is my favorite Prince album. It's the most pretentious thing to say because it's an album that never came out. Wow. Even though all of those songs were eventually released. But Camille to me is just the most solid collection of tracks. I love the pitched up voice. I love Good Love. I love Strange Relationship. I love Shockadelica. And you're so tired. Do we understand Camille as just the female expression of Prince, or is there anything we need to understand about the character? It's very hard. It does seem like a feminized version, but I'm not sure, because If I Was Your Girlfriend is certainly written from the perspective of a man saying, if I was another gender. Exactly. I got confused about that, because If I Was Your Girlfriend is also one of my favorite Prince songs, and also probably a song that many people who are listening to this podcast will recognize as having been A, covered by TLC famously, and also interpolated in 03 Body and 
Bonnie and Clyde on the bridge. But it is a fascinating song. And obviously, we've dealt with a lot of songs here that have expressed Prince's playing with gender and playing with gender roles. But this is apparently from the Camille character. But as you were mentioning, it very much feels like a lover imagining the different forms of intimacy he could have if he was actually his girlfriend's best friend, but then also if their best friendship turned sexual. It's very princely in that way. How do you even go to that place? To me, when I'm trying to sum up the singular genius of Prince's dealing with selfhood and gender and stuff like that, this song really has it. Because it's like, how do you even get to that concept? Like, where does that even come from? Yeah. So I think for a while, I thought that Camille was basically a feminine alter ego. Now I just think it's an alter ego, period. It's also somewhat convoluted because... He said at one point that Camille was responsible for the Black Album, right. which he famously deleted because, rumor has it, he thought it was evil, perhaps after doing Ecstasy. If you think about getting fucked up and then the next morning you have that, oh, uh, what did I say? What did I do? Who do I have to apologize to? Prince had that, but with like music. Mm. And so <laughs> totally repents after that, whatever. Right. But he's also talking about, in reference to that, this character spooky electric which is kind of the devil on his shoulder a lot of this apparently was explained in the love sexy concert program <laughs> so you really had to be invested at this point you know what rich this is like when i took a class on ulysses in college and in order to read ulysses you also have to read another book right. that's explaining ulysses prince's discography feels like that to me somehow exactly i mean i think the running thread from when doves cry to Purple Rain, Raspberry Beret, is that he just gives you these images and these ideas and he kind of lets you fill it in and he's not going to over-explain it. Right. And that might mean that it's half-cooked, but it also gives you a lot of room to play. It's impressionistic more so than half-cooked, I think. Yes, exactly. So Camille, we just understand as an alter ego that's somewhat feminized. Not that Prince isn't already. <laughs> I feel like I need to be like Carrie in Homeland with the board in front of me and all all the red totally. strings. Let me see if I can pick out what I felt like as a Prince neophyte feel like the overarching things about Sound of the Times that feel important. One is that this record more than any feels like a total showcase for everything that Prince can do. You get all the different versions of Prince. You get socially conscious Prince. You get carnal freak Prince. You get pop Prince. You get experimental Prince. Religious. And the other thing I want to say that maybe I missed in the If I Were Your Girlfriend conversation is that Prince's sexuality can sometimes, we talked about how it can border from scary to sexual there's a way in which it's also and think self-consciously humorous he'll be like mid-orgasm and start saying things in songs that obviously you have to know are just ridiculous and silly on if i were your girlfriend would you let me dress you would you let me wash your hair could i make you breakfast sometimes i mean it's funny there's a version of comedy that's happening on this too totally to me the foremost example of that occurs on a door right a door is most likely influenced by Susanna melvoin right and it's just this rhapsody. It's just him talking about how much he loves her. And right. the lyric goes, this condition I got is crucial. You could say that I'm a terminal case. You could burn up my clothes, smash up my ride. And then he stops himself and goes, well, maybe not the ride, but I got to have your face all up in the place. I always think about that. No, 
He's setting himself up. He's illustrating just how wonderful he is. And then he stops himself to be like, well, actually, don't touch my car. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, that's so funny. That's funny. That reminds me of International Lover or whatever the fuck that song is. Uh-huh. He's mid-orgasm and you can feel yourself kind of being turned on by it. And then all of a sudden, he kind of takes the piss out of it in the same way. Yes. It's really interesting. So I feel like that's one element of this record that I think is why it maybe is held up is because if you're going to point to a record that can show you everything that Prince does, you have it on this album. And then the other thing is, I think, feeling like maybe there's conflict coming into the mix between the carnality and the religious aspects of it. Because in some parts of this record, I feel like you still have the harmony there. But then there's a lot of stuff about how he's scolding himself about one night stands and does he want to settle down? There is this feeling of, is there conflict coming in or is religion or the way that it did kind of infect previous soul singers, previous black male soul singers in particular. Like Little Richard. Most pertinently Little Richard. Is that starting to actually create conflict in his inner being? So those were two themes that I pulled out as important elements of understanding this music. And then, of course, there's a socially conscious stream that is emblematic of the lead single and the title track, Sign of the Times, which is, again, dealing with things that Prince has dealt with in past music, like nuclear holocaust, one of his favorite topics, but also AIDS, gang violence, natural disasters, poverty, drug abuse. It has the feeling of 70s soul music. There's like a what's going on element, but also, you know, it's kind of like a minimalist funk song. There's proto New Jack Swing drum programming going on. It's a really interesting song. Francis skinny man died of a big disease with a little name. By chance his girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there were 17 year old boys and their idea fun. Is being in a gang called the disciples high on crack. And I think the new Jack Swing thing also adds another element that I feel like is important about this record, which is is that it's responsive to hip hop. Yeah. There's an element of Sign of the Times, which is Prince's sort of take on socially conscious hip hop music or even just hip hop music in general. I mean, there's a connection between the song Sign of the Times and I thought about The Message. I thought about Run DMC. Housequake is another song that almost feels like it's a rap song in some ways. It feels like he's rapping on it. It has very spare drum programming, which is something that Prince does, but also that hip hop does. It reminded me a little bit of Curtis Blow's The Breaks or something like that. So those are other things that were in the mix here as I attempt to try to taxonomize this incredibly sprawling piece of work, I guess. Yeah. There's a little bit of talk, much like Whitney got, about is Prince black enough? Is he serving his community now that he's gone pop? And to be clear, he was never very far from black radio and things like Kiss got played and stuff. But I think there was a little bit of that discourse, especially with things like Around the World in a Day and Parade. Mm. And something like Adore is taken as a way of him reconnecting with that radio format and it works. That song wasn't a single, but it was played on the radio and now I would say it's like a wedding staple for a certain segment of the population. A lot of people's wedding song is Adore. That's really interesting too when you think about Sign of the Times because I feel like in some ways you could separate a lot of these tracks out into music that's dealing with black music history and music that's dealing in more white iterations of rock music history. Obviously rock is also a black musical form at 
had its roots, obviously, we should acknowledge. But, you know, you think of a song like Slow Love, right, which obviously is like a 70s-style R&B sex jam that feels very much indebted to Al Green and Marvin Gaye and maybe even, like, Stevie Wonder on some level. And then you have songs like The Cross, which sound like giant rock, almost like proto-grunge rock song in some ways. So there's ways you can maybe even think about this music as the most all-encompassing Prince project that tries to kind of wrap in every element of Prince that we've known thus far, including racial identity. Yes. And also this album notably gets him a string of hits. Sign of the Times is a huge hit. Right. If I Was Your Girlfriend, very bold choice for a second single, does not hit at all. But then You Got the Look goes to number two. It's his biggest song since Kiss. Susan Rogers talks about how obsessed he was with that song. He played so many different iterations of it. There was one with a banjo. He kept speeding it up and slowing it down. And finally, Sheena Easton swings by the studio and he says, oh, will you jump on this? And he creates the definitive version of it. Also, interestingly, though, it's got Sheila E's like live percussion. It's not a Lindrum song. Yes, that's very true. And he's relying on her more and more as well. But also this album has a ton of that really spare funk that feels cut from the cloth of When Doves Cry and Kiss, but to a very different effect, including If I Was Your Girlfriend and Sign of the Times. Very drum machine reliant. I think the album misses once or twice and basically everything else is a classic. Right. And then the other hit is I Can Never Take the Place of Your Man. Incredible song. Right. Which is almost like a new wave rock song. Big rock guitar, super big anthemic chorus. Yeah. But I think it's kind of getting at some of the themes that I was talking about. I wrote in my notes, this is almost like Springsteen meets Elvis Costello or something. Uh Uh-huh. But what it got at to me that was so interesting is this is the song where he's kind of obsessed with exploring whether casual sex is satisfying or good for him anymore, which feels like a thing that rocks through this music a lot. In another classic Prince form that I think we haven't even really touched on yet, which is Prince can be both kind of misogynistic and very alpha in a sexual dynamic. And then he can also sing from a perspective that I think we often more associate with women, which is kind of being preyed upon, not totally empowered in the situation, vulnerable, like don't treat me badly. There's that element of his persona too. And this record has that going on because this song is essentially about a woman who's trying to use him as a one night stand rebound and him being conflicted about whether he wants to do that or not, which is something I think we'd more commonly hear from a female than we would from a male. Yeah.
some of the conflict might come from the fact that he broke up with Susanna Melvoin around this album. I mean, I think Adore is about her, but they were on the way out. One thing we didn't talk about, he fired the revolution. Right. Basically, he kept expanding the band. They felt like they were being pushed out anyway. And then things finally came to a head and he fired them all and replaced them with a new band. And that kind of meant that Susanna Melvoin, because she was Wendy's sister, got thrown out as well. Yeah. I guess it would be impossible in the context of this podcast to sum up the totality of this record. But it really is one of the most like sprawling, amazing masterpieces of pop music history, I think. We could devote an entire four episodes of this podcast to just talking about this record. There's so much here. Every time I listened to it, I just was finding new interesting threads we could have pulled at and talking about this. Yes, and it still sounds great. Maybe the most timeless sounding of all of these records. There are certain moments that are heavily 80s, like- Maybe Hot Thing. Hot Thing, exactly. That where I was like, this is so quintessentially 80s in a way that dates it. But for the most part, this record is weirdly timeless sounding. There was even one moment on it that felt almost proto-Catronata to me, the Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Oh yeah, Ballad of Dorothy Parker's amazing. It's like a weird, electronic, moody, funky, it really really sounds like an inspiration for Kay Tronado's music. I sound like a real man to me. Mind if I turn on the radio. So, okay, as you mentioned, this record is a critical darling. It has a slew of hit songs, his biggest string of hit songs that he's put together on an album since Purple Rain. But he's never quite matches that commercial height of Purple Rain again. What is the status of Prince's pop stardom as we exit this period? Because in some ways, I sort of think of Sign of the Times. Of course, Prince will want to have more hits. He'll go on to have more success. But it's kind of the end of the peak era of Prince's career. Does that feel right to you? Yeah. For years after this, he's a contender. You don't count him out. I definitely cared about him, Diamonds and Pearls, on an enormous amount of attention I paid to what he was doing. But he was everywhere. He was in magazines. He was an Entertainment Weekly style artist. His comings and goings were well documented. He certainly kept people watching, changing his name, doing this, doing that, whatever, all of that stuff, fighting with Warner Brothers, slave on his chin, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff for years to come. But certainly we've learned at this point that he's no longer in an imperial phase. That lasted one album. He is capable of releasing singles that flop. That happens frequently. And he's not afraid to confuse or piss people off, really, with his artistic presentation. Right. So he's not a safe bet. And I think that works a bit against him in terms of the general public conception. Do you agree with this record as being the peak of his artistry? Do you see it that way? Yeah. I mean, Questlove doesn't listen to Prince after 1987. As a rule. I mean, I've heard him say that. Yeah. So yes, it's a widely held belief that there's sign of the times and then there's after the sign of the times. One thing that feels interesting is that in the creation of his next record, which is initially going to be the Black Album but ends up being Love Sexy, is there is some sort of religious epiphany that I've sort of been previewing for people here that happens. You know, I don't want to to spend a ton of time on Love Sexy, which is maybe his first true, true, true flop since Purple Rain or since 1999 or whatever. What happens in between? Because there does seem to be like a personal shift that happens here with Prince in between these two records. You know, it could be the ecstasy speaking. Mm. (laughs) I can read you this little graph. It's probably the most concise way to do it. This is from Prince Vault, which is a great site that documents every single recording, Mm. released or not, albums released or not, go to Prince Vault and you will get all of the information that you never knew you needed. While Warner Brothers were concerned about releasing the album in December 1987, this is the Black Album, only nine months after Sign of the Times, the album's original cancellation was solely Prince's decision. He felt the album was too negative and hateful Mm. and not the message he wanted to release. 
he has spoken of a quote dark night of the soul where everything came to a head prompting his cancellation of the album close associates have discussed that this was the result of a one-time use of the drug ecstasy by prince and the hallucinations caused by it so that's another thing too that he's spoken out against drugs in his music repeatedly Mm. purple music is like don't need cocaine in pop life he asks what you putting up your nose right in the intro to love sexy he says the reason my voice is so clear is there's no smack in my brain Mm. tons of anti-drug stuff so ironic for a man that would eventually die of a drug overdose of course and also very fascinating for a person that was such a boundary pusher and such a iconoclast and somebody that's clearly pushed against a lot of mores and rules of society to have a sort of conservative streak but a control freak too that's why madonna didn't do drugs too right so i don't know that he was any more or less attuned with god than before but it does seem like he had some weird experience that kind of snapped him out of it i don't think it's about his connection to god but i think it kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier which is there was this harmony between prince's being and god then it starts to feel like there's almost like a shame or a self-chastising that kind of creeps in at a certain point and creates more of a conflicting relationship to god yes so for whatever reason prince ditches the black album and decides to release this record love sexy in 1988 instead what do you think about that record i think half of love sexy is great i think alphabet street is great i love i wish you heaven i love when two are in love and anastasia i mean that is a fan favorite anastasia people love that song well it's a really interesting song in terms of our religious conflict conversation because i mean it has this save me jesus vibe you know yes. you are my god i'm your child yes for now on for you i shall be wild i.e maybe like not for the earthly plane I'll tell your story no matter how long. I mean, it's got this real religious zealotry to it. It does. There's a lot of that happening on Love Sexy. It's a lot about God and heaven and heaven and heaven and heaven. And I think that the other tracks that we haven't mentioned from Love Sexy are just generic jammy stuff. It is a flop. And I think looking at him like this iconic pop star, it does become a mar on his reputation. But the thing is that he could afford to have an album one year that doesn't really hit. There's so many bands in the 70s that were churning out albums kind of like the way that Prince did. And sometimes their album hit and sometimes their album didn't and they went on and they made more like there are earth wind and fire records that didn't spawn huge hits when you're working this fast yeah right exactly so it seems kind of like a big deal especially coming after sign of the times but he was allowed to have a love sexy i think yeah but i think the bigger thing looking back on all of this is that he never really got back to a sign of the times or purple rain-esque place after this no but diamonds and pearls came close yeah but it's a harbinger of the fact that there's an ending to something Yes. In experiencing this record in full for the first time, I I had heard Alphabet Street and maybe I'd heard one other song on this record before. I think it was the first time in my listen through where I started to feel a little bit like there were certain moments where it just felt like spinning the wheel, aesthetically speaking. I just felt like, all right, we've heard versions of these songs before. There had yet to be up to this point a moment where each Prince record didn't feel vital to me in some way. Even Around the World in a Day, which I didn't really like that much, still felt like that was a vital piece in the evolution of the Prince discography that felt single 
singular. It was really unique. It just felt important. This was the first album where I was like, all right, there's some great records on here because Prince was obviously still in peak artistic form in many ways. But there's a lot of moments on here where I was kind of like, all right, we've heard this before. Totally. I've heard versions of this song before that I'd rather listen to than this. A lot of the songs go on too long. They're superficial or just loved up in a way that feels kind of cheap. Exactly. It feels like he's in a little bit of a holding pattern, aesthetically speaking, even as he's maybe having some personal epiphanies. Yes. But I wish you heaven, as far as breakup songs go, few of them are as positive or upbeat. Maybe Thank You Next, you could compare it to. Oh, that's fun. I Wish You Heaven is a way of being like, we're breaking up. I love you. All peace and goodwill toward you. Someone who provided love in my life. It's it's a rare sentiment in a song like that. Also, page turning is happening. I mean, how many times in this show do I run into this? I mean, it's just at a certain point, people that seemed unstoppable at one moment are all of a sudden not anymore. And there's new stars coming up and there's new ideas that are coming into form. There's new musical aesthetics and techniques and genres that are taking center stage. And all of a sudden, something that seemed like the coolest shit ever just doesn't anymore. And I wonder, yes. you know, if this was just a moment of that too. All right. So this is Prince's first album to not debut in the top 10 since 1981's Controversy. Alphabet Street is a top 10 hit, but that is the only real hit from the record. And his next album, his last of the 1980s, and where we are going to end this episode, is the soundtrack to 1989's Batman movie. Yes. Originally envisioned as a duet album with Michael Jackson, which is incredible to think about. Incredible. Prince's many dalliances with perhaps working with a Jackson and then for some reason not to could be its own little side project as well. I mean, love will never do without you. Bad. Speaking to Prince's interesting dualities, one of the most gender queer presenting people in pop music history who was so homophobic that he could not duet with Michael Jackson on Bad because he refused to say, your butt is mine. Or have it said to him. Or have it said to him. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, what do you make of this Batman thing? I mean, the first thing that I thought to myself was, okay, he had a flop album and he was looking for some sort of big project to get himself back into the spotlight. What do you think of this as a move? And what do you think of this as music, I guess? Well, I mean, the way that it's set up, it seems a little bit more pure than that. He was working on another album called Raven to the Joy Fantastic that he ended up releasing a record by that name about 10 years later. Very different record, though it shares the title track. So he was at work. It didn't seem like he was like, oh God, now I need to pivot into a pop thing. Supposedly what happened was Tim Burton had scored some scenes because obviously there's a whole Danny Elfman score. He had kind of used Baby I'm a Star and 1999 as reference tracks and he was cutting to it Mm. kind of in the way that The Graduate, the way that they used the Simon and Garfunkel songs and then ended up just using them. Tim Burton reaches out and said, will you do new songs? And he visits the set and he's like, okay. And then he ends up doing a whole album that's inspired by this. Very few of the songs actually make it into the movie. Party Man does Mm -hmm. Trust, which is just a rewrite of Baby I'm a Star. Mm Mm-hmm.
I remember hearing a rumor back in the day that when he visited set, Prince asked if he could be Batman. Oh my god. <laughs> Which I could totally see happening. And actually, he got to be Batman in a way when he decided to do the video for Bat Dance, in which he's dressed as half Batman, half Joker, which is still a Halloween costume that I really want to do. I think Bat Dance is actually incredible. I'm not saying that ironically. How did this song become a number one hit? It was because of children who wanted to hear Batman, like me. <laughs> this has got to be up there weirdest number one songs of all time. Yes. This and Justify My Love, I think, are the two weirdest number one songs of all time. I agree. Yeah. This is a firmly held belief of mine. I hear people complain a lot, Bad Dance isn't a song, to which I say, no, Bad Dance is eight songs in one. <laughs> it might come off as kind of cheesy and silly, but the creativity is there. It's really something to behold. Yeah, but I think it's kind of an anomaly because maybe you have a different view of this music, and maybe it's just because I was head spinning from listening to so much fucking Prince music yeah. over the last few weeks. But I definitely, again, here have the feeling Bat Dance aside of a little bit of wheel spinning aesthetically. A little bit, yeah. There's interesting things going on here. I think Electric Chair is almost like Prince doing like a Def Leppard song. Uh -huh. But again, I feel like both Love Sexy and this record lack that kind of vitality that every other Prince album had had to this point. Yes. The narrative feels stalled in terms of the aesthetic rollout of Prince's artistic muse or something like that. Yeah, and the production isn't really sparkling like it used no. to in a way. It's got a kind of late 90s murk on it for no good reason. Oh, great. It should sound better. It just should sparkle more. Yeah. But he put a lot into it. He assigned all of these tracks to different characters. He really took seriously the assignment. He was not just phoning this in. No. He really, really tried. And then Scandalous is one of his iconic sex ballads. So he has not forfeited his entire personality over to Batman. He's made Batman his. Yeah. So this record is more successful than Love Sexy, a lot more. It debuts at number one. It goes double platinum. Entering the 1990s, how is Prince viewed? I mean, he's obviously a legend. He's obviously an emblem of the decade of pop music in general. How is Prince viewed by the pop music consuming culture at this moment? Does he feel past his prime? What do you think is the perception of him entering the 1990s? I think he's done enough to be known as one of the greats, but he's also fallible right. at this point. He's clearly not for everybody in a way that maybe during Purple Rain, people thought he was. Right, right. He's not there anymore. It's probably similar to Madonna post-erotica without the slut-shaming. Kind of fallible. Not everything is necessarily going to hit, but too big to fail in a way. Too much money behind him, and he's going to keep going. If he's shown us one thing, it's that he has tons of ideas and limitless creativity mm -hmm. so he's just going to keep doing it and keep doing it and that actually worked for him for a while i mean he was able to get a top 10 every year up until 
I guess, let it go until come 94 or something like that. So it did work. So a major, major presence, but not a no brainer. Right. And also maybe pegged to the previous decade as a bunch of new stars are rising through the ranks. I mean, it's interesting because all of these major stars, I mean, we talk about the trifecta of Prince Michael Madonna. In this two to three year period, they all have a little bit of a come down. I mean, obviously, Michael the least. But when Michael hits Dangerous, that's definitely a come down from the previous three records in terms of just sheer saturation. Obviously, Madonna has Erotica and Prince has this little period. And it does seem like Madonna's really the only one that rises fully out of that and is able to maintain true longevity through the next 15 years. Totally. More so than the other two do. So I guess maybe the last question I'll have to ask you before we get out of here, of course, is what is an underrated? And I know there's probably 10 trillion that you could pick from this era. Yes. Maybe you want to pick an unreleased song. Maybe you want to pick something obscure, maybe an album track we haven't talked about. What is an underrated Prince song from this period that you want to send the show out on? She's always in my hair. Yeah. The B-side. A true classic. Yes, a true classic. Just one of his most undeniable melodies to me. Could have been a single and was relegated to a B-side because he had that much material at this point. Incredible. This was unbelievable. I'm exhausted, but in the best way. Yes. I feel like we could have done an episode on each of these albums, honestly. It's true. Also, just in terms of thinking about his place in the world in music, this is from the Alan Light book. I thought it was really illuminating. Yeah. It's impossible to take Purple Rain out of Prince's history, but if we could, would we still think of him as a world-class superstar? Or would we instead consider him an experimental pop figure, the world's top indie artist, as the New Yorker recently called him, with a million people who will follow him down whichever path he chooses, which sure seems like an enviable position for an artist to establish. Mm-hmm. I pulled that quote actually out of my notes too. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I think that summarizes this whole period, basically. Yes. Is he this? Is see that i don't know he's kind of both things at once which is a strange space to occupy for a pop star i don't know if i can think of another one that fully occupies both of those spaces in the way that prince does in this period uh, he's a gemini so <laughs> there you go <laughs> it's instructive all right so let's go on she's always in my hair rich does react thank you so so much it's always the ultimate pleasure to do this with you it's my pleasure too All right, so there you have it, the second part of our print series in the bag. I want to thank the incredible Rich Juzwiak for always being such a phenomenal guest. We love Rich on the show. Thank you, of course, to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this podcast happen every week. Thank you to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. We will be back next week with the third and final installment of our print series. In the meantime, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-A-E-X-I-B on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to gorgeous, gorgeous New York this Saturday, September 16th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick and Friday, September 29th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Come to Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's memoir, Music and Legacy in Pasadena on November 2nd. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.